All right, all right. Good morning, Hillcrest. I say good morning, Hillcrest. Everybody doing all right this morning? Sure do look good today. Welcome to all of you who hit the Nine Mile Campus today, and a special welcome to those of you that are with us online. Didn't Brian Davis and the praise team and the choir do good this morning? Amen. We're so thankful, so very thankful for the wonderful leadership we have at our church. Hope everybody's had a good week this week. Many have celebrated spring break this week. Many are still celebrating spring break this weekend and are coming back in town today after a little bit of time away. We hope that uh, regardless of where you are in life, that you're enjoying life. The Bible tells us that the Lord has given us all of this for our enjoyment. And so the whole purpose of life is to know who you are, who God is, why you're here, what life's all about, and to live it up until such time you're face to face with God. Who's ready to get in the Word this morning? Would you say amen today? Galatians chapter number 2 is where we are once again this morning. If you're new uh, to Hillcrest today, first of all, welcome. Delighted that you're here. Thank you for the grace of your presence here today. And we pray that the Lord has a great word for you. But to be aware that we are in a larger study of Paul's letter to the Galatians which we believe is the first letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, first of 13 that he would write that's captured in our New Testament. And in this letter, we find the most uh, condensed statement uh, about the gospel that Paul ever makes. We're calling this series The Essential Gospel, and every message that we share from this wonderful letter will have something to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the greatest treasure that the Lord ever gives to every single one of us who know Him by faith. I'm going to talk with you for a few minutes this morning about the subject of contending for the gospel. Last week we mentioned as a part of our message, Paul did not shrink back from confronting those who were twisting the gospel, contorting the gospel. And we made the observation last week that the gospel requires struggle. Man, you have to struggle for the gospel. Because the world is hostile to the gospel. And today we're going to look at the Bible's, probably the Bible's most poignant example of contending for the very soul of the gospel. And that is the passage that we're going to look at beginning in Galatians 2 and verse number 11. Before we take a look at it this morning, let me ask you this. What would it take for you to separate yourself and write off a fellow believer. I mean, let's say, for example, that you're in a connect group. Everybody in that connect group of 15, 20, 30 people professes Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The leader of that group begins to teach a, a Bible lesson, inviting folks to dialogue, and everybody in the class opens a Bible and has the same Scripture setting open in their lap. What would it take for you to just write off any one of those fellow believers who professes the same gospel faith that you do? I mean, would they have to be a social drinker if that were a core conviction of something that you were against in life? If you found that out about someone, would you just make a decision to write them off? Or maybe you would find out that they had a different view of the end times that you did. And maybe that was 
something that you were raised was hard and fast and this is the way you had to look at it and you find out that somebody's got a different view, would that be sufficient for you to walk away from them? Maybe you find out that somebody likes to ballroom dance. Or if you don't have a problem with ballroom dancing, dancing is okay for a lot of Baptists as long as it's not under a disco globe. Amen. <laughs> Would that be enough for you to <clears throat> write somebody off? A different view of the doctrine of salvation. If somebody walked into that connect group of a different skin tone or a different skin color or from a different country, or from a different social or educational background. What would it take for you to write off and separate yourself from someone who made the same profession of faith that you did? See, that kind of thing happens all the time. And today we come to a passage it's often referred to as one of the most tense and dramatic scenes in all of the Bible. And it has to do with this very thing. There were certain believers in the early church who were separating themselves, not from the world, not from pagans, but who were intentionally separating themselves from their fellow believers. And it wasn't over the majority of the issues that I just mentioned. The issue then in this passage of Scripture fundamentally has to do with race and cultural practices which are based on race. Who could share a loaf of bread around a common dinner table with people who didn't look like them? That's what's at stake here. Let's check it out beginning in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, and who was Cephas, by the way? Peter, that's right. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Can we just say verse 16 together? The reason I'm going to have us do that is because, in my opinion, this is the fundamentally key verse in the whole letter to the Galatians right here. Galatians 2.16 is the foundational statement in Galatians upon which everything else in Galatians builds. Together, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for the freedom that that gives us, for the pressure that that takes off of our backs, knowing 
that we don't have to climb a ladder to get to God, that God by His grace has built a rescue uh, path from heaven straight to our hearts, and He's done it through the cross of Jesus Christ. Guide us this morning. May we preach the truth of the gospel that others may hear it, receive it, and be changed by it for your glory in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. That's a very familiar passage of scripture here today. I mean, we're typically captivated by tussles from time to time and we want to know what's the big deal behind all of that. And here you have one of the great tussles of the Bible taking place in Galatians 2. This is an event that didn't take place in Galatia. It took place in Antioch uh, before Paul had, uh, had uh, written this letter to the Galatians. He's recounting an event that took place there in the church at Antioch. It was a head-on collision between two influential heavyweight apostles. But it was more than that. It was not just two apostles clashing together. This was really a clash of two different ways of living out the Christian life, one Jewish and the other fundamentally Gentile. And what was at stake was the unity of the body of Christ, the oneness, the togetherness. Would the church be made up of all ethnic races and peoples and tribes and tongues, or would it be balkanized? Would it be separated into groups where everybody in the group had to look like one another and, and come from the same background and the like. I read just this week where Columbia University in New York is having alternatively different kinds of graduation exercises. Did you all see that in the news this week? That they're going to have a graduation exercises for all African Americans and for all Asian Americans. And they're going to have a graduation exercise for people from the same socioeconomic background. So the low income students can all get together. Sounds like separate but equal to me. And I thought that was a part of our past in America. See, this kind of thing is what was at stake in the early church. Is the church going to be fundamentally Jewish on the one hand, where a group of people gather together according to one race and celebrate Christianity according to the law of Moses, if indeed that could even possibly be done? Or would it be fundamentally Gentile on the other, composed of people who are different from Jews, who majored on grace rather than the law? So Paul saw that the gospel was at stake here, and the ultimate outcome to what the church would be like was going to involve struggle. Paul knew that. Maintaining the purity, purity of the gospel still involves struggle. We have to contend for the gospel, fight for the gospel, because people constantly, even to this very day, try to compromise the gospel. They try to dilute it. They try to water it down, compromise it, twist it, contort it. So in this generation, in every generation, we've got to contend for the soul of the gospel. And that involves three necessary commitments that I want to share with you this morning from God's Word. The first is to ensure that we, as the people of God, consistently live in step with the biblical gospel. And to do it consistently, to know what the gospel is, and then to live consistently in step with what we understand the gospel to be biblically. Now, true to the very checkered nature of his past, this was something that Peter had failed to do. You know, Peter had an up and down life of faith, which probably is what attracts a lot of us to Peter. 
Because we tend to have an up and down faith. There are times when we feel very strong in our faith and there are times we feel very weak in our faith and Peter's life was a testimony to that. But he brings a problem to the church at Antioch that's summarized in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, James of course was the leader of the Jerusalem church, fundamentally Jewish. Before those men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he what? Drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And again, this took place in Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, in Syria, or just above Syria. No, it was in Syria. Just about 300, 350 miles away from the mother church there in Jerusalem. And it was fundamentally Gentile. Antioch was one of the most cosmopolitan cities of the day. It was a great commercial mecca. So it attracted people from all over the then known world and they lived together and they worked together and that early church at Antioch was fundamentally Gentile even though there were some Jews in the church. It was composed literally. It looked like heaven is going to look one day. All ethnic races, tongues and tribes. When Peter arrived there, he had no problem with that whatsoever. He began spending time with them. He began eating with the Gentile believers which was a really big deal for a Jewish man like Peter. Because y'all remember that the Old Testament established all those dietary laws that the Jews were supposed to adhere to, right? Were certain things you were supposed to eat, certain things that you could not eat, and the stuff that you could eat had to be prepared in the proper kind of way. And so Peter understood that. He understood the law, and most Jews did as well. And so that would have been a, a certain impediment to Gentile fellowship for many Jews, because they knew they were a unique people called by God, established by God, marked by things that identified them as unique, things like circumcision and Sabbath observance and these strict food laws. And a part of those strict food laws included laws against eating directly with Gentiles. And this is why the Jewish establishment during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was absolutely astonished when they observed Jesus eating with who? Tax collectors and sinners. That's right. This was part of the problem. Good Jews don't do that. We don't have table fellowship. That renders us unclean in the eyes of God. But the irony is that Peter was the one that was called by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles in the first place. And you read about that in Acts 10, Acts 11. Peter was minding his own business there, uh, dwelling for a time in the house of Simon the Tanner and Joppa when he was interrupted by the very Spirit of God who gave him a vision about taking the gospel to people that didn't look like him and didn't have common practices like him. And Peter was given this vision that involved this great sheet coming down from heaven that was filled with all of these delectable, creepy, crawly things that good Jews would never eat. Terrible things like shrimp, right? And barbecued pork, amen. I'm getting hungry already. And Peter looked at it and resisted it at first. Not so, Lord. God rebuked him in the vision. Don't you be calling unclean what I, the Lord, am declaring clean. Now I want you to go up to Caesarea 
And I want you to visit a family of a Roman centurion whose name was Cornelius. And Peter reluctantly eventually followed that vision. And he goes into the house of the Gentile, Cornelius, and has table fellowship with them there, which was a remarkable thing. And then he preaches the gospel to them, to the entire family. The Holy Spirit falls, and they're wonderfully saved and baptized. And Peter rejoiced right along with them. He eventually carried that message of what happened back to the Jerusalem elders, and they embraced it. They celebrated along with it, even though some of them were very concerned at first because they had heard, not that Gentiles got saved, but they had heard that Peter had actually sat down and broken bread with Gentiles at a table. And eventually, they finally agreed that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. But what's obviously surprising here is that given all that background, that Peter, who was in fact eating with Gentiles when he first got to Antioch, for some reason gradually begins to pull back from them until he eventually stopped breaking bread with them altogether. Didn't stop with him. That kind of attitude soon became contagious and infectious there in the Antioch church. Paul somewhat shocked and declares to us that he was surprised not only Peter, but the rest of the Jews, verse 13, acted hypocritically along with him so that even who? Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That's just totally off the wall. Even Barnabas, this primo evangelistic, hyper-encouraging Barnabas, made a decision to wear the mask. And what was the reason for the about face, brothers and sisters? Why did they do it? Do I have to draw a picture? F-E-A-R, fear, made them do it. Which typically what causes us to compromise the gospel. We're afraid. We're afraid of what it may cost us. We're afraid of what other people may think. We're afraid of how other people may respond. See, what caused all of this was the James gang showing up from Jerusalem. Certain men from James, from the mother church, these were Jewish believers, still held to the Old Testament law, fine with Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, but they had to embrace the law, become a Jew first, become like one of us first. As long as you become like one of us, so that you believe just like us and act just like us and respond just like us, have the proper interpretation just like us, then God will accept you and so will we. One of the first things they noticed when they got to Antioch was how lax Peter had become in dealing with people that were not like them. I'm telling you, this has been a problem in the church for 2,000 years. Some of y'all lived through this 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where certain people, because of who they were, because of their background, and because of their appearance, were systematically shut out from the doors of the church. As if God could somehow be pleased with that. And that's the first thing these people notice. Peter, you've, you've become a little bit too loose in terms of some of the things that you're accepting. Paul says it here. He was living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Well, he'd learned that from his experience taking the gospel to Cornelius and the family of Cornelius. But the legalists noticed it right away. 
In fact, this may have been why they went there to the, in the first place. We don't know whether James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, actually sent them or not. It just says they came from James. They may have gone on their own. Or James may have sent them, even though he had already given Paul the right hand of fellowship and affirmed the very gospel that Paul was preaching, which involved inclusion of all people. But James may have been thinking theoretically, I have no problem with the gospel that you're preaching, but for Jews to still be Jews, even within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they cannot share a table with Gentile people. And it just drove Paul up the proverbial wall. Peter began to back off because of that. It's not long before he does a total about face. And he starts meeting on the other side of the fellowship hall. He failed to live in step with the gospel. And here's the thing. Y'all still with me? Amen? Wasn't because he didn't believe the gospel. This is a guy that preached the gospel to Gentiles. He knew better. He knew better than the way he was living. He'd affirmed Paul, Paul's gospel. Not only did James give Paul the right hand of fellowship, Peter gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. Once Paul and Barnabas had gone to Jerusalem in the previous passage and declared the gospel that they were sharing to get the affirmation of the Jerusalem apostles, they all gave the right hand of fellowship. This should have been no surprise. This is a classic case of believing one way, preaching one way, teaching one way, and living completely differently in order to stay out of trouble. There is something wrong if the Christianity that we profess on Sunday is not the Christianity that we profess at work on Monday. It's wrong. It's hypocrisy. And that's the way Peter was living. Several years ago, I officiated the wedding of a girl who grew up in this church. Grew up like so many of our young men and women did, loving a particular college football team. Loved it. She just bled the colors of that team. And everybody knew it. True believer. All in, in every respect until she started dating a boy who supported the other team. <laughs> yep, she started dating a boy, supported the arch rival. And out of nowhere, this precious girl changed her allegiances and she changed her loyalties, started wearing the colors of the other team, went over to the dark side. <laughs> and you know why? Because she didn't want conflict with that boy, that's why. She wanted that boy to accept her. She wanted things to be great. She didn't want any conflict whatsoever. And I was going to do their wedding. And I just had a problem with that. I'll be honest with you. And I told her, I said, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You can wear those colors. And you can shout that battle cry all you want to. But you know it. I know it. Your daddy knows it. And everybody around you knows it. This is all fake. Love is so blind. I tell you, love can cause blindness, but so can fear. Fear can blind you too, particularly when it comes to taking a stand on matters of faith like the gospel. See, that's what happened to Peter. 
fact, Peter left his love and he caved to fear over matters of race, something the church has struggled with for 2,000 years, separating himself from Gentile believers who were his brothers and sisters in Christ. And by doing that, Peter yielded to a not-so-subtle temptation that sent a signal that even though those people had professed faith in Jesus Christ, that somehow they were still second class in the kingdom of God. That somehow they weren't fully accepted either by God or by the group who now were placed in a position of being the spiritual elite because they had the whole law of God that they kept. And Peter knew better than that. He knew better than that because of his understanding of the gospel And he knew better than that because of his own personal experience. Can I just say it this morning? The body of Christ, the kingdom of God cannot and must not be divided by discrimination of any kind. Not by racial discrimination, not by ethnic discrimination, not by spiritual discrimination, not by any kind of social discrimination. Because Paul's going to make this abundantly clear in just one chapter. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And we should know that. For 30 years, I've preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something that we'll continue to preach at Hillcrest. And in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. Because we want our church to look like heaven's going to look. And we want our church to respond in a way that demonstrates to the greater world that it is now perhaps more than ever divided along so many different kinds of lines. That there is a better way. There's a better way to do life. And it's the gospel way. See, the key lies in Paul's observation of verse 14. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That phrase, not in step with, translates one word in the Greek New Testament. It's a word from which we get our English word orthopedic. They were not living orthopedically. The word means to walk a straight course, to walk a straight line. And this is what they were failing to do. They'd failed to walk orthopedically with respect to the gospel. Instead, they were walking like children who'd gotten dizzy from too much time on a merry-go-round. Y'all remember being on a merry-go-round when you were kids? Not the one with horses on it, the kind you pushed until it got ready to take off into the highest heaven. And the problem is when you come off of that thing, you can't walk a straight line. And that's what happened to these folk, including Peter of all people. He'd stopped walking in step with the gospel and started walking like a dizzy child. He'd wandered off the yellow brick road that led to the kingdom of light. And he'd found himself, along with many others, in a dark forest that was a long way from the will of God. See, it was just like on the Sea of Galilee that day when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. You take your eyes off Jesus, you'll begin to sink. And that's what was taking place among a lot of people there in Antioch. They were living out of step with the gospel. Contending for the gospel means living and walking in step with the gospel. 
And what happens next reminds us that living in step with the gospel means that sometimes we have to lovingly confront those who deny the gospel. Lovingly confront those who deny the gospel, either by their words or by their actions, which will happen much of the time. We need leaders and we need believers with the courage to stand for the gospel, whether the opposition comes from inside the church or outside the church. See, most of the time we're willing to put up our dukes when it's those from outside the church, but most of the time gospel compromise doesn't happen. Listen, outside the church, people don't even believe the gospel. To compromise the gospel requires that you first have to have a modicum of understanding of what the gospel is. That happens inside the church. And that's what was going on in Antioch. And thank God Paul was willing to stand for God and to stand for the gospel. And here's how we know it. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, which is the way Peter had been living, fully accepting of Gentiles, if you like a Jew or though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? It was a total hypocritical act on Peter's part and Paul knew it. Now, he recognized that Peter was an apostle, A, and Paul recognized that Peter was an intimate friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, someone that Paul presumably had never even met, and he recognized, C, that Peter was a person of high influence coming out of the Jerusalem church. Paul knew all that stuff about Peter that would intimidate most people, give them shaky knees. But Paul didn't let that bother him, did he? Because he knew the gospel was at stake. And so he makes a decision to confront Peter because the essential gospel was on the line. And it's interesting to me that he does so publicly. Apparently at a gathering of the entire church. Maybe Paul called the gathering of the church. I don't know. Now, most of the time we need to confront persons privately and individually. For all we know, Paul had done that with Peter because Jesus makes it clear if someone does aught against you or someone offends you in some way, go and confront that person, Matthew 18. That doesn't work. Take another Christian brother or sister along with you and confront them again. And if that doesn't work, then you take it to the entire church. So we may assume that that was the case of the Apostle Paul. We're just not told here. What we are told is that sooner or later, this became a public confrontation. And maybe this issue was in the back of Paul's mind because Paul writes this to Timothy. Remember, Timothy was a young protege, and near the end of his ministry, Paul would write Timothy two letters, helping him to understand how to lead a church in a growing city. And he says to him here in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 20, check it out. As for those who what? Persist in sin. And so this kind of leads me to believe that this was something that Paul had addressed with Peter already. That this was a persistent sin. As for those who persist in sin, what? Rebuke them in the presence of all. That's persistent sin. 
Not necessarily the first time that someone is caught in the act of sin or whatever. But when they persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And you know why that statement's in the Bible? Because sin is infectious, friends. There's a reason it has to be confronted. Because if it's tolerated, it'll begin to bleed in the body of Christ, which is supposed to reflect the holiness of God. So if we don't learn to confront sin, honestly, humbly, gently, kindly, Christ-likely, if we don't learn to confront that, pretty soon the church will be unrecognizable when it's placed up against the Word of God. And so Paul confronts it. He didn't do it to be argumentative. He didn't do it because he sees Peter as a rival. He believed the integrity of the gospel was at stake. And so we confront it. Churches aren't always quick to do that. Churches today tend to shy away from that kind of uh, confrontation. But listen, we're stewards of the gospel. And as stewards of the gospel, we are charged to contend for the gospel, particularly when the truth of the gospel is on the line. For many, many years, the First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas, was pastored by Dr. John Bassanio. He's just a giant of Southern Baptist faith over the years, 30-plus years in the same church. And they once had this great big church, and they once had a church member who'd gotten caught up in some cultic beliefs based on programming that he had gotten hooked on on television Beliefs that basically denied the very deity, the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Denied that Jesus was God in the flesh, which is like critical to the gospel. And one Sunday, that man, because he'd become so convinced that Jesus was not God in the flesh, went out in the parking lot and put flyers under every windshield wiper in the parking lot, promoting the belief system of this what we know to be a cultic organization that denied the very divinity of Christ. That created, of course, as you could imagine, quite a stir in the church. I mean, just imagine if you went out and flyers under every car at Hillcrest or under every windshield wiper of every car at Hillcrest caused a stir. And when Dr. Bassanio found out who it was, and be sure your sin will find you out, When he found out who it was, he called the guy, member of their church. He said, okay, here's the deal. Help me understand this. Guy talked to him for a few minutes, and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You've got three choices. You can stand before the church next Sunday, repudiate the doctrine, and ask the church to forgive you, and all will be well. Or if you refuse to do that, I can call a business meeting and we'll gather the church together, present the situation of the church and the church will take action with respect to your membership here. If you don't want to do that, you can voluntarily make a decision and walk away from the church, removing your membership from our church because you are now believing and teaching something that is so far flung from our doctrinal statement. There's no way you can strive in fellowship with us here at this church. As you can imagine, what did the guy do? Three, right? He chose to take the path of least resistance and he walked away. But the important thing is, 
recognizing the potential negative effect that that kind of thing would have on the church if left unchecked, required leadership to stand up and publicly address it so that there would be no doubt about what was significant and how it should be approached within the body of Christ. Now, this was like a major, that's a major issue. And so I don't want anybody to misunderstand me today because I'm not giving anybody uh, the leave to go and just start picking fights with fellow believers, particularly as it relates to trivial matters. And have you all noticed most of the time, we, we, don't, we, don't, we, we, won't, we won't say a word about the significant matters, but we'll go to the mat over stuff that don't amount to a hill of beans in the kingdom of God. No, this has to do with significant matters. And when we do have to confront it, we need to remember that the fruit of the Spirit is patience, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We always act redemptively in a way that seeks restoration and that always promotes forgiveness. But when it's a critical matter of high importance, when the truth of the gospel, the unity of, church, of the church is at stake, Sometimes you have to rebuke privately, but sometimes also publicly. Listen, that's not judgmentalism. That's leadership is what it is. It's biblical accountability. And it's what you see Paul exercising here in Galatians chapter 2. Y'all with me so far? Say amen. We're talking about contending for the soul of the gospel means that we have to consistently live in step with the truth of the gospel. It means that we confront those who openly and unrepentantly deny the gospel. And then finally, and more positively, it also means that we can constantly affirm the truth of the gospel. And just what is the central truth of the gospel? Well, again, as I said a moment ago, I think Paul identifies it in what I believe to be the most important statement in the entire letter to the Galatians. Look at verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews. He's talking about Peter and Paul here. Paul's talking about himself. He's talking to Peter. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that one statement highlights the reason for the confrontation with Peter. And it represents the essential truth of the essential gospel that we're taking all these weeks to unpack from this letter. And that essential truth of the essential gospel is what we call, write it down, it's critically important, justification by faith. That's the essential truth of the essential gospel. Martin Luther called justification by faith the chiefest article of all Christian doctrine. In other words, it was primo to Luther. John Calvin referred to it as the hinge on which all of Christianity turns. And that's absolutely right. We're going to come back to this in a later message. I only have time to just mention it this morning. But justification by faith alone, <clears throat> faith alone, stands at the heart of the gospel message. And it answers the critical question, how does a person gain standing with a holy God? How does a lost, unregenerate sinner come to find acceptance 
and fellowship with a God who by nature is absolutely pure, absolutely holy, or if you want to boil it down to its most simple question, how is a person saved? And the answer is not by keeping religious rules like a lot of these Jewish brethren wanted the Gentiles to do. If they just keep these rules, God will accept them and so will we. No, the essential gospel argues exactly the opposite. Not by keeping religious rules, but simply trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. You see, salvation requires an admission that you cannot be saved by the good things that you do. If you're going to be saved and accepted by God, you have to admit that. I cannot save me. I must be saved and only God can do it. I don't have the power to do it myself. For them, it was by being circumcised. As if that had the power alone to save a person. But we can't be saved by being circumcised. We can't be saved by being baptized. Being baptized never saved anybody. You go into a pool of baptismal water, unregenerate, unsaved, no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you really don't get baptized. You just take a bath. No, baptism never saved anybody. Communion never saved anybody. Going to church never saved anybody. Listen, parking your little self in this room doesn't make you a Christian any more than parking your jalopy in your garage makes it a Mercedes. There is no salvation by association. Reading the Bible never saved anybody. It's a good start and it might lead you to salvation. But I've known people who've read the Bible cover to cover multiple times that close it every time they read it and say, you know what, I just don't believe it. Reading the Bible never saved anybody. Working the food pantry doesn't save anybody. God only accepts those who come to him through the cross and faith in the one who died upon it. Justification by faith in Christ alone. And I'm just saying this morning, anybody that possesses that kind of faith is by definition a Christian. And as we've learned today, anybody that professes to be a Christian needs to consistently live like a Christian. And that includes a willingness to fellowship, to break bread, to walk side by side and arm in arm with anyone and everyone who has been saved by the same grace and saved by the same faith in the Christ who died for us all. I don't know how this crisis was resolved. Paul doesn't tell us. But I think it was resolved. It appears they resolved it peaceably with no lasting damage to the church. Paul's ministry continued unabated for years into the future. But it's a reminder that we're all as I've said before, we're all just one step short of stupid. We're all a hair's breadth away from legalism. Just that much separates somebody that lives constantly in step with the gospel and someone who compromises the gospel and proves themselves to be a wearer of the mask. When we stray, sometimes we will. 
our first best choice is always to return to the gospel. And that gospel promotes salvation, as Jesus said, in very narrow terms. By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for all people. This is the good news of the good word of God. And let all God's people praise the Lord this morning and say amen today. Amen. Put your hands together.